Today there are two readings. We start from Mark's Gospel, chapter 10, reading from verse 13. People were bringing little children to Jesus for him to place his hands on them. But the disciples rebuked them. When Jesus saw this, he was indignant. He said to them, let the little children come to me. Do not hinder them, for the kingdom of God belongs to such as these. Truly, I tell you, anyone who will not receive the kingdom of God like a little child will never enter it. And he took the children in his arms, placed his hands on them, and blessed them. So, from chapter 12. Just as a body, though one, has many parts, but all its many parts form one body, so it is with Christ. For we were all baptised by one spirit, so as to form one body. Whether Jews or Gentiles, slave or free, and we were all given the one spirit to drink. And so the body is not made up of one part, but of many. Now, if the foot should say, because I'm not a hand, I do not belong to the body, it would not, for that reason, stop being part of the body. And if the ear should say, well, because I'm not an eye, I don't belong to the body, it would not, for that reason, stop being part of the body. If the whole body were an eye, where would the sense of hearing be? If the whole body were, was an ear, where would the sense of smell be? But in fact, God has placed the parts in the body, every one of them, just as he wanted them to be. If they were all one part, where would the body be? As it is, there are many parts, but one body. The eye cannot say to the hand, I don't need you. And the head cannot say to the feet, I don't need you. On the contrary, those parts of the body that seem to be weaker are indispensable. And the parts that we think are less honourable, we treat with special honour. And the parts that are unpresentable are treated with special modesty. While our presentable parts need no special treatment. But God has put the body together, giving greater honour to the parts that lacked it. So that there should be no division in the body, but that its parts should have equal concern for each other. If one part suffers, every part suffers with it. If one part is honoured, every part rejoices with it. This is the word of the Lord. Well, good morning, everyone. I did wonder whether I ought to start. It's so cold. I wondered whether we ought to start with some exercises or, or something. But um, I think we'll stick with the plan. And hopefully um, God will feed us as we look at his word together. So I'm going to start with a story. John Donne, the poet, was no stranger to pandemics. During the final decade of his life, which coincided with his time as the dean of St. Paul's Cathedral, 
he lived through three waves of the Great Plague. In his early years, John Donne had been a bit of a lad, basically, which was reflected in some of his poetry, which is quite sexually charged. His middle years were spent raising a family in poverty. They had 12 children. His wife died shortly after the 12th one was born, and only seven of them survived beyond 10 years old. And despite his aristocratic Catholic background, the final two decades of his life was spent as a cleric in the Anglican Church, and he became a much-admired preacher. During one of the waves of the plague in 1623, he himself became ill and spent many weeks on his sickbed, fully expecting to die, naturally enough, of bubonic plague. He kept a diary during that period, later published as a series of meditations, so we know what he was thinking as he, as he went through that period of time, and we can follow his thoughts as he wrestled in his mind with God, trying to make sense of his suffering, a bit like Job. Initially, he cried out to God, asking all the why questions, again, a bit like Job, but didn't get the answers, but eventually he came to a state of acceptance and a greater dependence on God. At one point in his illness, he heard a bell tolling from a nearby church, and for a while he thought that that was tolling for his own impending death. In the end, however, he realized it represented the death of some other poor soul in the city. But it led him to ponder the extent to which we don't live in isolation from one another. The bell told for him just as much as for the actual plague victim. The incident was recorded in one of his meditations and includes his, some of his most recognizable words. He wrote, No man is an island entire of itself. Every man is a piece of the continent, a part of the main. If a clod be washed away by the sea, Europe is the less. And he went on, I am involved in mankind and therefore never sent to know for whom the bell tolls. It tolls for thee. Spoiler alert, but um, John Donne didn't die of his disease. It turns out not to have been bubonic plague. But he did suffer, and in his suffering, he had realized his dependence on God and his connectedness to and his dependence on his fellow man. So, a life of dependence. Dependence on God and dependence on one another. And this is the last topic that we're going to look at, which takes its theme from John Stott's book, The Radical Disciple. So, what does the Bible say? Our first reading in Mark's Gospel described an incident in which the disciples make a misguided attempt to turn some children away from Jesus. Their parents were bringing them to Jesus for a blessing. And Jesus is described as indignant, and it's no wonder, because in just the previous chapter, Jesus had taken a child in his arms in front of his disciples and told them, whoever welcomes one of these little children in my name welcomes me. The disciples, however, hadn't learnt 
So Jesus has to go over the lesson again, effectively, and he adds to it, let the children come to me and do not hinder them, for the kingdom of God belongs to such as these. Truly, I tell you, anyone who will not receive the kingdom of God like a little child will never enter it. What is it about children that makes them such a powerful model for those who enter the kingdom of heaven? It can't be their innocence since children are capable of rebellion and wrongdoing. And furthermore, if innocence were the condition for us entering the kingdom of heaven, then let's face it, none of us would manage it. No, the key characteristic is that of dependence. After all, that's the natural state of children. They are entirely dependent on adults. The younger they are, the more dependent they are. So entering the kingdom of heaven like a little child implies for us a willingness to be dependent on God through his son, Jesus and it's not just entering his kingdom that requires this willingness to be dependent. God wants us to live our lives in a way which reflects our dependence on him. Going back to the Old Testament, take for example the Israelites as they travelled out of Egypt towards the promised land through the desert, leaving their old lives behind them. One of the first things they learned was to be dependent on God. God had to meet their most basic needs for food. He provided manna and quail to eat in the desert, and he also, in a timely way, provided water for them at key points in their journey. Skipping to the New Testament, when Jesus taught his disciples to pray, the pattern that he gave them to follow, the Lord's Prayer, contains a threefold expression of our dependence on God. Give us today our daily bread. Forgive us our debts as we have forgiven our debtors and lead us not into temptation but deliver us from evil. And we see dependence on the Father supremely modelled in Jesus' own life, in his death on the cross, in his prayer in Gethsemane, seeking the Father's strength to face that ordeal and his complete surrender on the cross Father, into your hands I commit my spirit. So it's clear that for the believer and therefore the disciple of Jesus, dependence on God is to be a hallmark of our life. But it doesn't end there. God has also designed into human life a dependence on one another. In our second reading, the church is pictured as a body. Now, in his Meditation, John Donne saw the interconnectedness of all humankind. And now this passage in 1 Corinthians 12 pictures that interconnectedness, but for the church, but surely the church should be a model for all humanity. I love the diversity of this picture, how functionally different all the different parts of the body are from one another. The eye, for example, purely an organ of sense, turning light into useful information for the brain to process. But the hand is an organ of action, an organ of strength, an organ to manipulate the world around it. It's so different. But of course, the eye cannot say to the hand, I don't need you, nor can the hand say to the eye, I don't need you, nor can any one of us say to another, 
I don't need you. We do treat different parts of the body differently, both in the human body and in the church, some given greater honour and some rather hidden away out of shame. What we display and what we consider shameful on the human body varies from culture to culture. But that's not God's way with the church. We read, but God has put the body together, giving greater honour to the parts that lack it, so that there should be no division in the body, but the parts should have equal concern for each other. So we have a powerful picture of us being dependent on one another, of being concerned for one another, and as the passage says in the last verse, suffering with one another. So John Stott suggests that dependence is a mark of a disciple of Christ, and I hope I've shown that the idea is a completely biblical one. It would be a bit worrying, really, if I'd have come up with something different. The question that remains, however, is how do we gain for ourselves that willingness to live in dependence on God and on our brothers and sisters in Christ? I've got just three thoughts here. Firstly, we can develop that dependence through a habit of prayer. I mentioned, mentioned earlier about the Lord's Prayer and the threefold expression of dependence on God. The first of these begins, give us today. That expression of dependence should be a daily one, not give us enough bread for the coming week or give us enough bread for the coming month, although those are perfectly valid prayers, but they deny us the opportunity of building a day-by-day habit of dependence on God. And the prayer teaches us three areas in which we are dependent, in our physical needs represented by bread, in our need for forgiveness, and in our need for help in the daily battle with temptation and the various trials of life. Almost as an aside, the habit of saying grace before meals is not a trendy one, but again, it is a daily acknowledgement of God's provision and therefore our dependence on him. It's a way of building in that daily sense of reliance on God. My second point is that we can recognize and admit this dependence to one another. We need to be open and honest about where we are. We talked earlier about the dependence of children in a bit. I'll give an example of dependence and frailty in later life. But what about those in between, when we're supposedly strong and healthy? As we grow up, we're encouraged to be independent. But this doesn't mean we can dispense with dependence. Rather, it means that as we grow in maturity, others can depend on us. We're still dependent on others, but there's this mutual dependence. As we go from young adulthood to middle age, we still have needs in a properly functioning community. These are best met by support from others. Young adults might be dependent on others for mentoring through early stages of life and careers. Families might have needs, particularly in raising children. And the workplace is a great place for learning to depend on God and colleagues. I'm coming towards the end of my career in the automotive industry. In recent years, I've performed the role of a project manager. But as a leader of some difficult projects, I have a profound sense of my dependence on my project teams. 
the gifts and the knowledge of the people around me. And I've also seen, looking back, the grace of God helping me through some of those difficult times. Let's never consider ourselves totally independent. Instead, we should be prepared to recognize that we can't live this life without God and other people. Then my final point. Often, the way to realize our dependence on God and others is through the path of suffering. In this chapter, John Stott shares a rare story of his vulnerability. This is the man who was one of the most significant leaders in evangelical thinking during the second part of the 20th century. He was a man who chaired conferences, pastored churches, began institutions, and was, in 2005, named in Time magazine's list of 100 most influential people in the world for that year. But in 2006, the following year, aged 85, he fell in his own home. In doing so, he fractured his hip. He describes waiting while help arrived, spread-eagled on the floor, completely dependent on those who were to help him. He writes, For this is where, from time to time, the radical disciple needs to be. I believe that the dependence involved in these experiences can be used by God to bring about a greater maturity in us. John Stott also shares his experience of the emotional weakness that accompanied the physical weakness during this time, and also his experience of weeping, which for a man schooled at rugby and the whole culture of the the stiff upper lip didn't come naturally. A friend of his reported an encounter with John while he was in hospital convalescing. He wrote, I remember we both found ourselves in tears, overcome by a powerful sense of our common human vulnerability and frailty. It was a painful but liberating experience. For John Donne too, his realisation of his own dependence came through an experience of suffering. But suffering like this isn't something we choose. It's something that happens to us randomly. And I don't think there's a magic formula for getting through those times. Perhaps we can learn something from the preparedness of John Stott to share his vulnerability with close friends. Perhaps the reflectiveness of John Donne offers for some a useful model. But perhaps the greatest onus lies with the rest of us to love and support our brothers and sisters through these times. Galatians 6 verse 2 says, Carry each other's burdens, and in this way you will fulfill the law of Christ.